So this Sunday, uh, in case you haven't been here uh, for the last 20 minutes, we're starting a new journey, seven-week journey. We're calling it Made for More. And as we go on this journey, we want each person in the room and those who aren't to discover who God made them to be. We want them to discover what God's asking them to do. And we want them to, to see clearly where God wants them to go. But it's also really important, especially in our American, you know, singular culture, that we ask and clarify those things as a collective church body. Who are we made to be? What has God asked us to do? Where does He want us to go? So here's what we, your church family, needs from you if we're going to do this as an us thing. We're asking you to make a commitment to, to being at church the next seven weeks. Kind of sounds crazy that you would make a commitment for seven weeks in our culture. But we're serious. Don't allow anything else to, to get in the way of that. If you get in late on Saturday, take a nap in the afternoon instead of sleeping in. If you're going out of town, man, make it a priority to get back for Sunday morning. If you've made plans to be away, I'm, I'm going to humbly ask you today, consider changing them. Because you see, it's really hard to be a body when the pieces aren't there. Billy Bob doesn't look like Billy Bob if his pieces are all spread out, right? How can we see clearly if our visionaries aren't in the room? How will we develop a strategy if our taskmasters are missing? Can we do it well if our detail people aren't there asking all the right questions? And we do all this because we believe deeply that God has made you for more. And we also believe that God has made us for more. This church family is made for more. So make it a priority to be there for each step of the journey over the next seven weeks. There's no prize for being there. Uh, we don't get any of the gold foil stars that you used to maybe get in Sunday school. But Scripture reminds us that when we set apart ourselves to draw near to God, He's going to draw near to us. And so what we're really doing is we're asking you and us to give God a chance to show up and to show off as He shows us who He's made us to be. And today, the goal as we work through these eight verses, these first eight verses in Romans 12, we're hopeful that God is going to align our hearts and our minds to what He wants to do because that's where transformation begins. That, that we're all just, we're getting all of ourselves on the same page with who God is and what He's saying. And somewhere along the way, we hope our friend Billy Bob is going to help us do that. So, um, here's the thing. If, if our hearts and our minds are going to be aligned and they're going to be changed, uh, I can't do that. You can't do that. But we serve a God who can. And so we want, to, we want to pray and ask Him to do that and speak through His Word just now. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for who You are and for the Word that reveals Your truth to us. And so we pray that truth, Your truth, would change us this morning. That it would transform our hearts and our minds. That it would bring them into alignment that we would leave this place discontent. That you would be setting us up today in this place to be discontent with, with what life looks like right now. Because we know that you have made us for more. Father, we trust you. We trust your spirit to lead us in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have been on a journey through Romans this entire year here at Christ Community, and uh, Romans 12 through 16, the back part of the book, uh, is going to be the content for this series. And it's a big shift in the, in the letter that Paul is writing to the Romans. 
and so in this back half of the letter, he's speaking directly to them as a community of believers, as a faith community. And he starts in verse 1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, he's been explaining how the mercy of God works in the first 11 chapters of Romans. In view of those mercies, I urge you to present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we're praying the Lord would do, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Being a living sacrifice. Paul writes that that is true worship. But what does that even mean? What does it mean? At the very least, we can understand from this that worship requires sacrifice. As much as our culture has made worship singing a couple of songs like we just did, and as much as that is worship, we understand that worship requires sacrifice. If our relationship with Jesus doesn't cost us anything, we're not actually worshiping Jesus. If our pursuit of Christ doesn't cost us anything, we're not actually worshiping Jesus. We may think we are, but we aren't. I read a quote this week by uh, a guy named Jim Elliott. Some of you may know his, this name or recognize this name. Others may not, and that's okay. Jim Elliott is a, a rather famous missionary who was killed by the tribe of Indians that he was trying to reach at the age of 28. His daughter recently found some of his journals, and he found this, she found this quote uh, in one of his journals shortly before the time that he was killed. When it comes time to die, make sure all you have to do is die. Stop provoking. When it comes time to die, make sure all that you have to do is die. You know, I've come to the stark reality as I think about this idea of being a living sacrifice that we get so caught up living that we don't know what's worth dying for. We get so caught up living that we don't know what's worth dying for. We're always on to the next adventure, the next uh, thing that we can do to our house. We're always ready for the next vacation. We're always ready for the next thing that we can take our kids to and enjoy with them. And we get so caught up living that somewhere in that mixture of things, we, we don't know what's worth dying for. We don't really know what a priority in our life is. There's no condemnation in that. Uh, we do the same thing. My family and I do the same thing. And Paul recognized this, right? Like he's writing inspired by the Spirit of God. And he says in verse 2, right? It's like, okay, be a living sacrifice, yada, yada, yada. Then he says, do not be conformed to this age. Like he knows what we're going to do because God knows who we are and what we're going to do as sinners. So instead of becoming a living sacrifice, we do what we're told not to do in verse 2. When we get caught up in our living, we just conform to this age. We conform ourselves to what we see happening around us. We take the attitude of people that we see on social media. Yeah, you know what? I think I feel that way too. We become like the people that we are attracted to. And all of those things seem fine for a while, right? Like, is it really that big of a deal that I get the, the latest you know, type of clothing that that ladies are selling in some hidden circle in a home. Like, yeah, I don't know. 
how that works. But you know, like, and then the next thing is, is you got to have a certain type of pot and pan. And then the next thing is, is you better use essential oils. Like, there's always a thing. Like, we're always conforming to this age, right? And for guys, it's the same. You're always rooting for something. Like, there's always something that we feel like, man, for my life to mean more, for my life to, to be what I think it's supposed to be, there's, there seems like there's something more out there. We get so caught up living that we lose track. We don't know what's worth dying for. And the tricky part is that while we're on that journey, it may even seem or feel right. Have you ever been in one of those seasons? You get, you get to this point and you're like, it's like you sit down at night and you're like, oh, honey, I just think like, it feels so good. We finally got to where we've always been trying to be. And then the next day, like a bomb goes off, right? Something happens. But we're always, it's like we're always chasing this next thing. Jesus said this in John 10.10. He says, A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that they may have life. They may have life and have it in abundance. Now I want us to think about something for just a moment. If by life Jesus meant all the things that I enjoy about living here on this earth, if by life Jesus meant all the things that we dream about having or all the things that we want to do before we die, if by life Jesus meant those things, then this passage doesn't make any sense. Because all those things are good, but I don't want any of those things in perpetual abundance. I told you earlier, fruit cobbler, yum. They go in my fundic region. They're good. But I can only eat so much of that before it makes me sick. And if I'm like eating it in perpetuity, at some point I'm morbidly obese. I love sports, but sports have a shelf life. My physical body can only take so much. And then at some point, like it's not even about me being able to play sports, like my pocketbook can only take fandom so far. There, there is an end to the abundance of that good thing. Disney may be the greatest place on earth, but I couldn't spend every day there for the rest of my life. And I know this, one's, this is tough. So we're like, yes, you could. It's magical. They've got the magic kingdom and Mickey's there. Like, yes, I know. But believe it or not, at some point you would have, you would have done everything there is to do at Disney. You would have checked it all off. And probably sooner than you think. You see, we're so caught up living that we don't know what's worth dying for. And if Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it in abundance, He certainly doesn't mean the things that we think of when we think of the life that we currently live. But the reality is, is it's easier, it's easier to choose another thing that pretends to make life full instead of being filled by the Spirit that calls us to come and die. That's the reality. It's easier to continue to choose things that make us feel full but don't actually call us to come and die, to be a living sacrifice who is worshiping the Creator God. I'm currently um, reading a book. And uh, I don't usually do this. I usually like to read the whole book before I share a quote, but this one's just too good. The book is entitled The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. It's very intriguing to think about the idea of power and how some abuse it and how some are using it the way that Christ intended. But this is the quote from the book. While we are running around trying to create a life that matters, 
Jesus tells us that if we try to save our lives, we will lose them. If we try to be first, we'll be last. Just one, one more time. While we are running around trying to create a life that matters, yes, Jesus tells us that if we try to save our lives, we will lose them. If we try to be first, we will be last. So how exactly is it that we're made for more? Because my brain was wired to think that there was more for me in this life. And there is, but it doesn't look like what we think it does. You see, Paul is making a huge statement here in these first two verses about how the Romans are living life and how they can begin having a life worth living. Those are two very different things. There's more, but the more begins with the transformation of their mind. They have to realize that they've gotten caught up in living and they don't know what's worth dying for. So how are we made for more? How are we made for more? And, and what do we even mean by that? Here's a big idea that I want us to walk away with. God's mercy makes me more by making me a member. God's mercy makes me more by making me a member. Paul continues in verse 3. He shares a little bit of his, his own perspective. He says, For by the grace given to me, and we can't run past that either, right? We think about Paul's life. Paul was killing Christians, and the grace that was given to him was that his life was completely changed, and he became one of the greatest missionaries for the Christian movement. By that kind of grace that was given to Paul, I tell everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. And now as we have many parts in one body and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul is suggesting that God's mercy, which is far better to us than we often stop to think about, God's mercy is the thing that makes us more. And He does it by making us members of one body. Now, there's some truths on the backside of that that we don't like to think about. And one of those is this, that you can't do anything to add eternal value to your life. You can't do anything to add eternal value to your life. It's God's mercy that makes you more. That's extremely sobering. There's nothing you can do to make your life mean more. There's no accomplishment that you can pull off on your own that's going to fulfill you. There's no salary amount that you can go out and get that's going to make you more. There is no level of moral living, of, of being a really good person, that's going to add value to who you really are. And so Paul says, I'm telling you, in light of that fact, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Be sensible. God is the one who has doled out measures of faith to each of us. So cool to think about this. God distributing measures of faith. You get a little bit, you get a little bit, you get a little bit. You get a lot. You not so much. I, like, I, like, I don't know how, sometimes I like to picture those things. It's a little weird. God is doling out measures of faith to each of us. But, but what is so cool, what I love about this is that even our measures of faith are meant to work together. 
I have many people in my life who I would describe as doubting believers. It's like, yeah, God is, God is, I think there's a God, like there's got to be a God. But there's just a whole lot of things that I doubt. And I doubt that for a variety of reasons. But I am so grateful for them. I'm so grateful for them because they help me to think deeply about who God really is. They ask questions that force me to process, man, like how does this reconcile with the God who created me? On the flip side, I have a ton of people in my life who have far greater faith than I. And they, they help me to dream and imagine all that God can do as we continue to trust Him. And so it's neat that even as God gives us measures of faith, even that is working together to create this full picture of who God is and who we are as the body of Christ. God makes us more by making us a member. Last year, uh, I went down to the King of the Bluegrass basketball tournament the week before Christmas. And uh, we, our team was getting, waiting to play their game, and we're sitting behind the bench of another team. And while we're sitting there, all of a sudden, this young man, like, the whistle blows, a kid falls on the, the floor, and this young man, like, like, launches out of his chair on the bench with a towel. And he's, like, out on the court, slides on his knees, and he's wiping the sweat spot. And I'm like, who is this? Like, what is going on? So I start watching this kid. And as I'm watching this kid, I mean, this kid is on it. Every time somebody falls, he's out there. Timeouts, he's got the water bottles ready. I mean, this, like, it was amazing. The Courier-Journal picked up on his story. And uh, this area in, in high school basketball has gotten to know a young man by the name of Sam. Sam was born in Nigeria. And... Uh, his parents had applied for a visa because of the violence in their country. And when he was six years old, that was, it was granted. They, were in a, they won a lottery pool. And they ended up in the Louisville area. And uh, he, he's continued to grow up here. And when he was uh, a freshman in high school, he was playing basketball in PE class one day. And the coach at Ballard High School saw him playing and said, hey, you should come try out for the basketball team. So he's excited. You know, like... Here's a kid from Nigeria. He's getting ready to live. Like, his dreams are going to be coming true. Like, he's going to be an American basketball player. And he goes out for tryouts, and in his own words, he's like, I learned really fast that I wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. And so the coach said, hey, you, Sam, you're not going to make the team, but I'd love to invite you to be our manager. And so Sam just adopted this attitude that he, if he was going to do it, he was going to do it well. And so Sam, like, it, it's amazing, number one, just to watch this guy be a manager. Like, if you can go to a Ballard High School basketball game, he's worth the ticket price, okay? Uh, he's, he's even, at this point, he knows the type of gum that different players and coaches like, and he keeps those in stock. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. Like, like, look this guy up. It's really, really cool. And what's even more amazing is that he's become this integral part of the team, and as being a part of the team, uh, man, people have noticed the value that he brings to Ballard High School basketball. And there are coaches all over the state who are making recommendations to college coaches. And now Sam's dream is to be an NBA manager. Why do I share that story? God's mercy makes us more by making us a member. How many of us, if we were Sam when we got cut, would allow our pride would allow what we think is the greatest life to keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. 
Because I guarantee you, Sam's life and what Sam is doing, he is being made for more. Not because he's the star of the basketball team, but because he has found his niche in serving leaders and holding a team together. Basketball coach at Ballard said this in one of the articles. He says, sometimes Sam is taking his job more seriously than some of the players are. To be honest, he's doing a better job than our team playing basketball and a better job than our staff coaching. If I'm giving an MVP award, he's going to get it. He's maximizing his potential and doing his job, whereas a lot of us aren't. He's maximizing his potential and doing his job. Folks, that's why this journey is so important. We can use all the language and talk about being a family and body of Christ and all these things, but if we're out there, everybody trying to be the star, and we don't even take the time to, to not think so highly of ourselves and actually dig in and see who God has made us to be, how he's made us for more, then we're wasting our time. God makes you more, but it's not about making you more all by yourself. He makes you more by making you a member. He makes you more by making you a member. And you know, there's a, a scary thought that God could have let you try to make it on your own. He could have tried to, he could have let you try to make it on your own. But you have to give yourself to that process of becoming a part of the body. Paul writes about this in another one of his letters to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He talks about the feeling that many of us feel as we're trying to figure out our spot and our place in God's plan. He says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens... Billy Bob, getting in my way. You're part of the body, Billy Bob. He's okay, Sherry. <laughs> she, she, she warned me. He's expensive. <laughs> All right, let's try this again. I'm going to stand really still. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. You see, the reality is, is that if you are trying to, to live your life outside of Christ, but more than that, if you're trying to live your life in Christ, but outside of the community of a local church body, you're going to feel like a foreigner and a stranger. But that is not why Christ came to die. He came to die so that you would no longer have to be a foreigner and a stranger. But you've got to figure out your part of the body. Our church partners with Sparrow Missions in Honduras, and I've been to the mission field there. And when you walk into any of the communities or any of the environments in Honduras, you know you're a foreigner. They know you're a foreigner. You feel like a stranger. They treat you like a stranger. It would take years, decades of me living there and showing up to those places daily for them to count me as a citizen. And the difficulty of being a foreigner and a stranger while waiting for citizenship and membership to happen, like, I can't imagine. Like, that's a tough season and a tough period to live in. We're asking you to do it with us for seven weeks. Live in that season. I felt it from the other side, too. A few years ago, Philip Devine and I took an afternoon to help a Hispanic resident here in Shelbyville report to the immigration office in downtown Louisville. I can't tell you how many times I found myself that afternoon wondering how in the world this young lady did it. 
She couldn't speak the language. She couldn't drive. She was trying to understand a process that was foreign to her and foreign to us. It was excruciating. And to be honest, it left me feeling really helpless. The thought of being a foreigner and a stranger. I share those things to say that if you're outside of the community of Christ, I understand what it feels like. It's excruciating. It feels helpless. God could have let you try and make it on your own. He could have saved you from your sins and said, have a nice eternity. Hope we can catch up. But instead, He made you more by making you a member of Christ's bride, of the church. He made you a member of the greatest and longest standing movement of grace on the planet Earth. And Satan is going to continue to try and stop that. He's going to try to convince you that life is about you. And as long as you're saved, you're good. You don't need anything or anyone else. And to that I would say, that's the kind of truth that would say something like, Billy Bob's tailbone, like, it can just exist outside of itself. And if you look at the tailbone, like, it's just this little wagging tail back here. Like, there is no purpose for that little bone outside of being a part of the body. And yet many of us are trying to live our Christian lives like that. Wagging in the wind. So Paul finishes out this section of Scripture by giving some specific examples of how his audience can fulfill their calling, how they can be a part. Verse 6, he says, According to the grace given to us. So now Paul says, Remember, grace was given to me, and so I didn't think more highly of myself than I thought. I realized I needed to be a member of the body. And now, let's remember that grace is given to all of us. According to that grace, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching and teaching, exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. This list could go on and on. There's other lists in scriptures. But the point, what Paul is getting at, is that you've got to find your sweet spot. Just as Sam did, you've got to find your sweet spot. I told you that I enjoyed sports. I played Little League Baseball. I stopped after that because I wasn't very good. I only ever hit one home run. It was in practice. I remember it like it was yesterday. Left field fence. I was, I was Babe Ruth that day, let me tell you. One day only. And if you've ever played baseball or golf or anything where you have to swing and hit something, that might be like hitting Woodbees with a tennis racket. But if you've done that, you know that there's a sweet spot. And that day when I hit that home run, there was a sweet spot. Like it just felt different. I hit a lot of baseballs. Well, let me back up. I hit an average amount of baseballs. And it hurts your hands. Or it doesn't go nearly as far as you think it's going to. Or you hit it and it feels really good and it's like 30 feet up in the air and they're going to catch it and you're going to be out. But that day, I hit the sweet spot. What Paul is getting at is that you have a sweet spot in this journey of Christianity. Sweet spots are everywhere and you have one too. And so the, the, the changing in our minds is, is realizing that you may be surviving not knowing what that is. But you're certainly not thriving. You may have life, but you don't have it in abundance. You may want more of Jesus, but you're not experiencing more of Jesus. So the question 
that I want you to wrestle with. Are you content not living in your sweet spot? Like, are you content with that? Are you, are you just okay with that? Blake, I really don't need any more of this. I'll just keep showing up every once in a while on Sundays. Life will work itself out. Are you content with that? Man, if I had my way, I'm hitting a home run every time. It feels a whole lot better. Today, let your mind be renewed by Jesus. Don't settle for life as it is. Give yourself to this process over the next seven weeks. Search out how Jesus has made you for more. Because being able to live and thrive in the sweet spot that Jesus created you for, like that's what's worth dying for. That's what's worth dying for. Not just pursuing the next thing that seems fun. Tangibly, you got to get in a group. On Sunday mornings, we're going to talk about this on a, on a big scale, on a, on a community scale. But in these groups, you're going to go and discover your sweet spot. You personally, for seven weeks. This week, you're just going to talk about what makes up that sweet spot. Your design, your purpose, your position in the world. We see that, and you guys are going to be in Ephesians in your small groups. Ephesians 2.10 is a great picture. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We're thinking about it in three simple words. Be, who's God made you to be, what's he asked you to do, and where does he want you to go? We are his workmanship. That's who he wants you to be. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what he wants you to do. Which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. He's got a plan for how he wants you to use this. Get in a group. Find your sweet spot. As we finish this morning, Christ community, I want to ask, what's our sweet spot? Like this church, what's our sweet spot? What part of the body are we? I'd like to introduce you to Billy Bob's kneecap. Apparently his hips aren't too flexible. He was an old man when he died. I don't know. But he's got this nice kneecap right here. It's kind of like the tailbone. It's dangling a little bit. I know enough anatomy to be dangerous. But the kneecap is connected to one of the stronger muscles in the body, your quad. And it's also connected on the lower side by a tendon to our, to our lower leg. So it's this really interesting piece that like, we just think of it as the thing that gets hurt when we fall on our knees or whatever. But the kneecap is this interesting connector between the quad and our lower leg. It's the piece of the body that takes the strength of the quad and transfers it to the lower leg. It is the very thing that gives us the strength to run instead of walk. It's the piece of the body that propels us forward instead of letting us shuffle through life. Christ community, let's be a kneecap. Let's be a kneecap. Because when you're a kneecap, you are transferring the strength that you have from Christ to someone else so that they can move forward. When you're a kneecap, you're transferring the strength that you have from Christ to someone else so that they can run instead of walk. Those are the kind of things that we need to be about. This week, you can be a kneecap by sharing what God teaches you in your Bible reading or your devotional time with someone. Ask the Lord, who, needs, who else needs to hear what you've just said to me, Lord? And then share it with them. You can be a kneecap by sharing your story of how Christ grew you through a season of discouragement or apathy or doubt. 
share that with someone you see going through the same thing. Be a kneecap. Be a kneecap by, by sharing with someone far from Christ how you found Christ the first time. I love the honesty of John saying, man, we just showed up because we needed a church to sign off so we could get into this daycare. That's, that's real. How did you find Christ? Be a kneecap by figuring out how to use what God has blessed you with to help someone run to Jesus. Please just be a kneecap. Be a kneecap. The catch is that you can't be a kneecap if you aren't connected to His strength. Right? You can't be a kneecap if you aren't connected to the strength that we have in Christ. Today, are you caught up living? Are you so caught up living that you fail to consider what's worth dying for? If that's you today, we want to invite you to give your life. All of it. It's a radical call, right? Give all of your life to a guy who knew that you were worth dying for. See, Jesus was a kneecap too. He gave everything about Himself, all of His strength, so that He might save each of you.